God with you. And uh, it's always a joy to take the trip from Jonesboro, where I live with my wife, Lori, and our two kids, Elijah and Shoshi, and take the trek to Kingsport to be with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ here at Grace Fellowship. So it's great to be with you uh, this Sunday morning. Well, it was one frosty February morning just a couple of months ago. I got in my car in Jonesboro, and I made the trek to Greenville, where I was called to serve on jury duty at the U.S. District Court. (laughs) Anybody ever have jury duty? You know, they're mixed emotions. In one sense, I want to fulfill my civic duty. But on the other hand, I'm a busy man. I've got places to go, people to see, things to do. So honestly, part of me hopes that anyone and everyone but me is going to go from the jury pool up to the jury stand. (laughs) And if you've ever had jury duty, you can relate. So get there. We're in this room outside the courtroom. There are about 50 people there. We watched this video about the judicial system in the United States and how special and unique it is and how important the jury system is. And then a few minutes later, we got ushered into the courtroom where the judge talks to us a little bit about jury duty and reiterated some of the same points that we saw in the video. Did you know that the American jury trial is a constitutional right? It was included in the Sixth and Seventh Amendments to the Bill of Rights. Jury trials prevent tyranny from the federal government and are part of our unique checks and balances in our American democracy. And the third thing we learned was jury trials provide citizens like you and me to participate in the process of governing. It's an opportunity, in short, to provide an active voice for we, the people. Now, I have to tell you, I was actually called from the jury pool to the jury stand. There were 24 of us on this jury stand, and the judge said the particular case was going to take about five days. I was like, ah. <laughs> and then the lawyers and the judge begin asking, asking the potential jurors who were standing up in this jury box, or sitting there, I should say, start asking questions. Some potential jurors who were in the box, they had scheduling conflicts, and Gracefully, they were dismissed. Uh, Then as they continue to ask questions, then what happens is the lawyers take a vote on the potential jurors sitting up in the stand. And one by one, uh, you're dismissed, you're dismissed. Well, in my case, I'm a minister. And the the defense lawyer asked me about, you know, so you're a minister. I said, yes, there's strike one, right? And then the judge said, you know, there's a chance of snow in the coming days. And is anybody going to have any potential problems getting from your home to the courthouse in Greenville? I raised my hand with a few others, strike two. And finally, last year, I had served uh, on a jury, on a grand jury, actually, in Jonesboro. You served on a grand jury. Do you know, young man, not so young, but do you know, sir, that a jury trial is much different than a grand jury? I said, I believe I do, sir. Strike three. (laughs) They dismissed me. (laughs) You may go, Mr. Stam. I got to go home. Yay. (laughs) Anyhow, the experience really is a very good civics lesson. And the more you learn about our constitutional democracy, the more you're impressed with how awesome the system really is. Now, you're probably aware that the majority of our founding fathers, they were God-fearing people, right? But did you know that our Constitution was patterned actually after a covenant, God's covenant with ancient Israel? They say, what is a covenant? Well, it's a morally binding commitment between two or more parties. American democracy was set up to be a government for the people, of the people, and by the people. In sum, the Constitution is a covenant of sorts between the government and the people. 
Now, as we think about the Bible, biblical covenants are agreements between God and man. The foundation of those covenants being relationship, a relationship between God and man. So our democratic system certainly is a covenant of sorts. But did you know that there is a covenant that you and I as kingdom citizens live under today? It's called the new covenant, the new covenant. And if you study covenants, you certainly study the new covenant. But you see, the new covenant is very important because it, it, it stands at the very heart of God's redemptive plan for mankind. That's why I think it's important that we seek to understand it, revel in its privileges, and seek to fulfill its responsibilities. For just as American citizens are born into the American system of democracy, so we as kingdom citizens are born again into what is known as the new covenant. And today we're going to explore that new covenant. In fact, we're just going to introduce to you this new covenant today. Civics is the study of the privileges and responsibilities of citizenship. So consider our time this morning a spiritual civics lesson of sorts, okay? As we study our privileges and responsibilities as kingdom citizens living under the new covenant. You see, it's really important for us to understand our privileges and be able to fulfill our responsibilities as we seek to be the best kingdom citizens that we can be. So let's learn about the new covenant this morning, who it is, what it's for, and most importantly, how does it apply to us as Christians? Drum roll, please. Ladies and gentlemen, please open up your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. <laughs> I was ready for you today. When I came in January, I didn't have a clue. I thought, Wow, it's really nice to be encouraged like that. <laughs> I'm ready today. Uh, as you're turning to Jeremiah 31, a couple of caveats. We're just touching on a very big topic. In fact, there are books written about the New Covenant, okay? We're just going to introduce you to it today, touch some really big points. But I encourage you, it perhaps may raise some questions, and that's not a bad thing. I encourage you, seek the answers in the Word of God, okay? as we are introduced to the new covenant. We're going to talk about the new covenant promise. Jeremiah chapter 31, we're going to read verses 31 through 34, okay? Jeremiah chapter 31, we begin reading in verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Jeremiah is sharing a prophecy with the Jewish people about the future. And maybe you're wondering, Larry, you just said that the new covenant was applied to us as Christians today. Yes, we'll get there. But for now, understand that the new covenant was first and foremost a covenant that God made with the Jewish people. When Jeremiah, who was known as the weeping prophet, wrote this prophecy, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been taken captive 
by the Assyrians about a century earlier. And the southern kingdom of Judah would soon be taken captive by Babylon in 586 B.C. So this is the context. And in this context, Jeremiah provides the Jewish people a future hope in the midst of their present pain. And so we have this declaration that God gives to the Jewish people through Jeremiah. And interestingly, following this promise of the new covenant, most of the remaining information we find about the new covenant is found in the New Testament, which in Hebrew is called the Brit Chadashah. Brit Chadashah literally means what? New covenant, new covenant. So let's go back to Jeremiah 31 and let's first see the reason for the new covenant. Back to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and 32. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day, which, in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. God has to make another covenant with the Jewish people because they broke the first covenant. And we have to ask, what covenant did they break? They broke the Mosaic Covenant, and the Mosaic Covenant is otherwise known as the Old Covenant. If you remember, just after the Lord delivered the Israelites out of physical bondage in Egypt to Pharaoh, remember, he leads them to Mount Sinai, and it's there that he makes a covenant. Moses leads the people out. You remember the mountain, fire, smoke, the tablets, the law. Anybody here see the Ten Commandments? Anybody? Okay. If you're not familiar with the Ten Commandments, it's a great movie, okay? Yul Brenner, Charlton Heston, rent it on Netflix. It's a great movie about the story, okay? But the Mosaic Covenant was really rather simple. It was an affirmation of God's relationship with his chosen people, Israel. But this Mosaic Covenant was conditional. And this was the condition. God said, if you keep my commandments, you'll be blessed. And if you break my commandments you'll be cursed. You can read about the, new, about the Mosaic or Old Covenant in Genesis chapters 19 through 24. Under the Mosaic Covenant, God declared Israel to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests to the nations. You see, God's redemptive plan was not about Israel exclusively. God's redemptive plan was about mankind it's about people, for God so loves the world. And under the Mosaic Covenant, Israel was called to proselytize or reach out and bring converts from the nations into the worshiping community of Israel. And by the way, the nations in Hebrew is called Goyim, okay? Goyim, that's where we get the word Gentile, meaning nation. So either you're Jewish or you're Gentile. You're someone from the nations of the world. And we see this inclusiveness throughout the Old Testament about God's redemptive plan being for all people. You remember God saved Nineveh through the prophet Jonah? Remember Ruth? She was a Moabitess. In fact, she's included in the Messianic line of Jesus Christ. And in Isaiah 56, verse 7, God says, I will make my house, a reference to the temple, God says, I'll make my house a house of prayer. For what? Anybody. All nations. God said, I'm going to make my house a house of prayer for all nations. 
Additionally, the Old Testament promised that Messiah would not only come to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but that he would be a light to the Gentiles and he would bring the true knowledge of the true God to the utter ends of the world. And if you're taking notes, you could write down Isaiah 42.6 and Isaiah 49.6 if you want to just jot those scriptures down. So we see the reason for the new covenant. Now notice its characteristics. In verses 33 and 34, following the pain of judgment comes the hope of promise. Check it out. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So this is a future time when God promises that he's going to write his law on their heart. They will all know the Lord and they're all going to be forgiven. And by the way, this new covenant is unconditional. Notice in the text, God repeatedly says these two words, I will, I will, I will. Zechariah chapter 12 and Ezekiel chapter 36 explain in detail this future reality, which occurs at the second coming. When the Jewish people will see Jesus, they will recognize him as Messiah and they will mourn for their sin. They will be broken. God's response, he's going to bless them with the spirit of grace and supplication. And you can find that also in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 12. But I want you to notice these words of Ezekiel in chapter 36. If you want to turn to Ezekiel 36, we'll show it on the screen. But I want you to note the similarity with New Testament concepts we relate to as Christians, like the cleansing from sin, the new birth, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 28. Beginning in verse 24, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. As Christians today, as followers of Jesus Christ... The Lord has cleansed us from all sin through his shed blood, right? He has written his law on our hearts, and he has given us a new heart and a new spirit. But we have to ask the question at this point, how is it possible that if that covenant was originally promised to the Jewish people in Jeremiah's time and ultimately fulfilled during the second coming of Jesus, how then does it apply to us as Christians today? Good question, isn't it? Well, turn with me to Matthew 26, and let's begin answering that very, very important question. Turn to Matthew 26, and we're going to look at verses 27 and 28. And as you're turning there, the background is the Last Supper. It was the Passover Seder, Jesus and the disciples meeting on the night he was betrayed, and 
He lifts up the third cup at that Passover Seder, the cup of redemption. And he utters these words. He said in Matthew 26, verse 27, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it all, drink from it all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And we have to ask the blood of what covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sins? Answer, the new covenant. Hebrews 9.15 says, and it's on the screen, you can see it and write it down and look at it. For this reason, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So what is a mediator? A mediator is basically a go-between. So Jesus brokers a new covenant between God and man, and he institutes that new covenant at the Last Supper. In fact, the text, as we see, communicates that his shed blood was applied retroactively. And that's a big word, but all it means is this, that the blood of Christ covered the sins of those who believed in God through the Mosaic Covenant. Isn't that fascinating? The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin, but the blood of Christ also was applied to all the Old Testament saints. And you go, how's that work? Well, if you're reading in Hebrews chapter 11, just write down Hebrews chapter 11. It's the heroes of the faith, right? You will notice that every single individual believer in Hebrews chapter 11 are Old Testament figures. These are Old Testament saints, okay? Because the fact is we are all saved by grace through faith. But the difference between Old Testament saints and New Testament saints is this. Old Testament saints were saved by grace through faith in God's promise of Messiah, whereas we as New Testament saints are saved by grace through faith in the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus the Messiah has come. And under the new covenant promise, all believers in Jesus, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, are one together in him. And Paul elaborates in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. I'll read it, but you can write it down and take notes and check it out later. But Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 14, these words. For he himself is our peace who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So, the new covenant promise is partially fulfilled at Jesus' first coming. It's going to be ultimately fulfilled at his second coming. And I want you to notice the contrast between a promise partially fulfilled and a promise completely fulfilled. What's this like? Well... It's kind of like a ticket that you purchase to an event, and not just any event, but an awesome event. Maybe you pay for a trip or a vacation or maybe an opening night of a blockbuster movie, okay? Now, a couple of years ago, I took my son Elijah. He's 13. He's going to be 14 in a week. I can't believe it. But I took my son Elijah to the Toby Mac concert at Freedom Hall. It was awesome. And we purchased the tickets. We got the tickets. We started getting excited, right? But I want you to notice, there was an agreement, there was an, an agreement that I made with the concert promoters, right? And what was that agreement? <laughs> I sent them the money, 
<laughs> okay, they show me the money, and they sent me the tickets. And you know what? Those tickets had great value. But at that point when I had the tickets, that was only the partial fulfillment of that promise, right? When we showed up at Freedom Hall, showed the guy the tickets, walked into the concert, saw Toby Mac. And by the way, he was absolutely fulfilled. Superb! It was an awesome concert, but that was the that was the ultimate fulfillment of that agreement. Okay. Now, in short, tickets are like promises that are partially fulfilled prior to an event when the agreement and transaction are initially made. Right? Money, tickets, we get that, but they're only completely fulfilled at the appropriate time. When you get on the plane, you get on the train, you walk into the concert hall or the theater. We understand that, right? Now, as kingdom citizens under the new covenant reality, today we are only experiencing a partial fulfillment of God's salvation. You say, how's that? Well, in this way, you see, when we trust in Jesus Christ, we are delivered from the penalty of sin. That's called justification. And as we live our Christian life, we are continually delivered from the power of sin. That's what we might call justification, or I should say sanctification. But you see, it's only when we die and go to heaven or when Jesus returns and brings us home that we are going to be delivered from the presence of sin. That's glorification. And as we read about the promise of heaven in the New Covenant Scriptures, we know that some soon tomorrow that's going to be a reality, right? But for now, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit, he is given to us as a pledge of our inheritance. And you say, what inheritance? That inheritance being what? Heaven. Heaven. So for us today, I want you, therefore, brothers and sisters, to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Because just as the Lord will keep his covenant promises to Israel, he's going to keep his covenant promises to us as the church. And he's going to keep his promises to you and I as individual believers in him. Because he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So I've introduced to us briefly the promise of the new covenant, which entails much. But as kingdom citizens, we also enjoy many privileges under it. And as we touch on just a couple of these briefly, I hope that you're blown away. And I hope that you will rejoice in the Lord who has so richly blessed us with these promises. Because we'll find as we take a brief look at the new covenant that it is better than the old covenant in many ways. First of all, when the church is born in Acts chapter 2, you remember the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, the spirit falls. By the way, Pentecost 50th, that's the Hebrew feast or the Jewish feast of Shavuot, okay? When the church is born at Pentecost, every believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. Under the Mosaic Covenant, only certain people at certain times were filled with the Spirit to accomplish certain promises or certain tasks, I should say. And this, is, this was primarily, uh, the Spirit primarily filled prophets, priests, and kings, occasionally artisans and other people, but primarily the Spirit filled prophet, prophets, priests, and kings. And you can st- do a word study of the Spirit in the Old Testament. It's quite a fascinating study. But you remember David in Psalm 51? 
he's confessing his sin to God regarding his sin with Bathsheba. And he cries out to God and he says, Lord, take what? Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me, David cries. But today, you and I as believers under the new covenant, we have this privilege. You don't need to be a prophet. You don't need to be a priest, a king, an artisan, somebody special. Because under the new covenant, all of us made an image, you put our trust in Christ. All of us who are made in his image, you put our trust in Christ. Guess what? He indwells each of us. It's really a remarkable blessing because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And what are some of the other benefits of the Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit cleanses, sanctifies, and justifies. The Spirit intercedes for us as believers before the Father. The Spirit, the Spirit of truth, leads us into all truth. The Spirit comforts us in times of affliction and hardship. And He also refreshes us daily with love and with hope. Another privilege of the new covenant is this. Gentiles are now grafted into this new covenant promise that we read about initially in Jeremiah 31. The Apostle Paul elaborates in Romans 11. And, and write down Romans 11 if you're taking notes and check it out. It's there that the Apostle compares Israel to the natural branches of a cultivated olive tree and the Gentile believers to the branches of a wild olive tree. And he continues and he says, the natural branches Israel were broken off and the wild branches, the Gentiles, were grafted in together. Therefore, Paul writes that Gentiles have been made partakers of the new covenant promise and therefore inherit the blessings of redemption. You see, God's salvation does not exclude Gentiles, nor is God's salvation exclusively for Jewish people. The only requirement to enter into that new covenant relationship is simply to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. As theologian Ralph Alexander rightly notes, quote, forgiveness has no favorites. I like that one. Forgiveness have, has no favorites. Also under the new covenant, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Old Testament saints were only covered by the blood temporarily. That's why they had to continually, day after day after day, offer up blood sacrifices. And finally, under the new covenant, if anyone is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 says that we are new creations in the Messiah. And as new creations, God gives us new hopes and new desires. Our desire to love God and others has nothing to do with old rules written in stone, but rather the law written on our heart. The Apostle Paul explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. He wrote these words to the church in Corinth. You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So we want to answer the question, what is the law written on our hearts? Well, it's not a set of rules. It's a person. The law written on our hearts is not a what, it's a who. The law written on our hearts is none other than the Holy Spirit himself, which the Bible also calls the spirit of Christ and the spirit of life. Romans 8, 2, Paul also penned these words. He wrote, 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. You see, although the law under the new covenant was holy, righteous, and good, it couldn't save. It didn't save. It simply showed the people that they were lawbreakers, sinners in need of a Savior. And the Mosaic law also was external. And the people were limited in their ability to observe it because the Spirit was not universally accessible as it is for you and I as Christians today. And because we have the law written on our hearts, we now have the power to love God and to love others. Yes, this laundry list of privileges under the new covenant is certainly impressive. You know, it's really good to know the benefits of something. Anybody here have a AAA card? <laughs> I've got one, and you know what? I need one. <laughs> Every year, AAA sends me this, this letter with a list of all the benefits, okay? I mean, it's, it's front and back. There's a lot of benefits to having a AAA card and the things that they can do for you. You know, they've got travel benefits like hotel and rental car discounts. They've got home lockout service and identity theft support. And their bread and butter, roadside service. I've needed that roadside service on many occasions. One time we were in Greenville, South Carolina, visiting some friends. And uh, I locked my keys in the car. Have you ever done that? It's not a pretty picture. You know, the door closes, and in an instant you have a revelation, right? (laughs) And my response to that revelation was, no! And after I calmed down, my wife calmed me down, I realized I've got a AAA card. Maybe they'll bail me out. Call them up, said, yeah, we'll send somebody out, no problem. Came, unlocked the car, and was calmed down. We went into the restaurant and enjoyed our, enjoyed our meal. But I have to be honest. If I wanted to experience all the benefits of that AAA card, I'd probably have to reshape my entire life, and that ain't happening. But those benefits are really impressive. And perhaps you have a AAA card, or perhaps you've, you have some kind or have had some kind of insurance. And it came through for you when you really, really needed it, above and beyond your expectations. And you, and, and you have to ask why. Well, it's very possible that you had access to all these various benefits, but you didn't know you had them until you really need to have until you really needed to use them, right? You know, as believers in Jesus, it's not paying a premium or annual fee that gets us the benefits and privileges of, privileges of the new covenant. It's simply by putting our trust in Jesus. Once we trust in him, we have access to this myriad of spiritual riches the Lord so graciously provides. And so what ought our response to that privilege be? Well, it should be praise and thanksgiving. Brothers and sisters, do not take these privileges for granted. Rather, I encourage you today, ponder them, praise God for them, And echo in your hearts the same words that the psalmist penned and exclaimed in Psalm 103 when he wrote, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Amen? Amen. So we've touched upon the promise and privilege of the new covenant. No doubt they're awesome. But there's more. 
You see, with privilege comes responsibility. So let's conclude our time by looking at our responsibilities as kingdom citizens under the new covenant. And we find the centerpiece of our new covenant responsibility found in Matthew 28. So turn to Matthew 28. And that new covenant responsibility is centrally grounded in the Great Commission that we're going to read here in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. The Great Commission. I'm going to begin reading in, in Matthew 28. Verse 18, we read, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what does it mean to go and make disciples? A disciple is a follower, a follower of Jesus. Making disciples is twofold. One, it includes sharing our faith with those who have not yet entered that new covenant relationship that, as we mentioned, simply comes through one's personal faith in Jesus Christ. But it also includes helping people grow in that relationship with the Lord. Now, evangelism and being witnesses for the Lord is important, but I want to I note one very important difference between the methodology for the mission of God's people in the old, during the Old Covenant and the mission of God's people today under the New Covenant system. And it's this. Remember I mentioned earlier, Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests, right? They were called to be a light to the nations. But God said, bring converts or proselytes into the worshiping community. He said, don't go out to the nations lest you fall into idolatry. But under the new covenant, we as God's people are called to go out and make disciples. That is a huge difference. You see, we're called to go out and bring the glory of God and the truth of God with us. Making disciples also means to support each other's walk with God. Remember, Jesus said in John 13, 34, these words. He wrote, or he said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you also should love one another. You know, there are lots of one another's in the New Testament, 59 to be precise. For example, we're called to serve, to pray for, to instruct, to forgive, to confess our sins to, to carry each other's burdens, and to submit to one another among the many one another's. In fact, we could do a whole series on the one another's. But the point is this, to whom much is given, much is expected. You know, if you've ever received a scholarship of any kind, whether it be academic or athletic, you have responsibilities. You have to go to class or show up at practice, perhaps maintain a certain grade point average. If you have a job, you earn a paycheck. And one of the ways that you're going to earn that paycheck is you are going to fulfill your responsibilities, right? Now, when I came to ETSU many moons ago, in the fall of 1991, I was a graduate assistant with the women's tennis team, and ETSU paid me a stipend, and actually they paid my entire tuition for graduate school. But with the privilege came responsibility. I had to go to class and maintain a certain grade point average. I had to coach the team at practice and travel with the tennis team uh, during matches. And most of us can relate 
to this idea that with privilege comes responsibility. As kingdom citizens, we should want to fulfill our responsibilities under the new covenant, not so that we could earn our salvation and not so that we can keep our salvation, but we should want to fulfill those kingdom responsibilities because of our love for God. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, each of us here has been blessed with unique resources, time, energy, gifts, and talents. And the question we need to ask this morning is this. How are we using them to fulfill the Great Commission where God calls us to go out and make disciples? This is a question we each should ask. For as kingdom citizens living under the new covenant, God desires that we follow him. And as we do, we can walk in those good works which God has prepared for us to walk in. Now, as we conclude our spiritual civics lesson this morning, I hope that you have been enlightened. I hope that you have been encouraged, but I also hope that you've been challenged because the new covenant is truly a remarkable blessing to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Now, if you're here today, this is all new to you. Maybe you don't know Jesus, uh, but you're here. I'm really glad you're here. You know, all the new covenant promises that I've mentioned are available to you, but you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus. You see, God made you in his image to know him, but that image has been marred by sin, and sin simply separates us from God. That's why Jesus came and he died for our sins and he rose again on the third day so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be restored to a proper relationship with God, so that you could experience abundant and eternal life. And if you're here and you've not yet trusted in Christ, I encourage you, come talk with me after the service. Come talk with one of the leaders at the church, okay? As we close, I want us to understand that today, under the new covenant, we are living in what the Bible calls the church age or the age of grace. When God has focused his redemptive plan primarily on the nations of the world. But you know, friends, there's some soon tomorrow when God is going to refocus his redemptive purpose back upon the Jewish people. And at the second coming... He's going to restore Israel to their former place of glory. He is going to write his law on their hearts. He's going to give them a new spirit and a new heart. And he's going to forgive all their sin. For this is God's plan. And it's a good plan. It's a perfect plan. And today, under the new covenant, we are gathered here today. And in a moment, we are going to experience communion, which Jesus instituted at the at the Last Supper. So at this time, I want to invite uh, those who will be serving communion to come forward and the worship team also to come forward as we prepare to take communion. We are so blessed. And remembering what the Lord has done for us through this time of communion, when Jesus gathered the disciples at the Last Supper, he instituted the New Covenant. And it's by this new covenant that you and I are gathered here today. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup, the cup of redemption, the cup taken after dinner. And he had given thanks. And after he gave thanks, he also said, drink from it, all of you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And this is a time for us as Christians. If you're a believer, uh, the elements will be available for you here. As we partake of the bread and partake of the cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. So let us now prepare our hearts to reflect on what Jesus has done for us as we partake in this communion. Will you pray with me, please? Lord God, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. We thank you that he is a mediator of the new covenant. We thank you that he accomplished it through the shedding of his blood on Calvary. We thank you for that ultimate sacrifice for us which opens up the door of grace. We thank you for blessing us with it. Lord, prepare our hearts now to receive, to remember and to reflect on the wondrous work of Christ on our behalf. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.